we're in chapter seven in our study of Ecclesiastes. Um, we still have a few more chapters to go before we finish the book, but I've been starting to think already about what I'm going to do next, but we'll talk about that later. In verse seven, um, and this is an odd place. I must have, I guess, run out of time last week. We kind of a place to, uh, to, to kick in and get started. But he's, uh, he's talking about in this section, in chapter 7, the uh, providence of God, uh, God's involvement in life and so on, and wealth, material goods, material things. As, uh, so we'll pick up with verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself? You are living better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. It's also his vanity striving after win. Verse seven, to me, is such a such an important verse, even for us here in 2023, because the twelve man—that's work. That's what we do vocationally. Yet his appetite is never satisfied. If we live, notice how he put this: if we live, if we work, if our vocation is just to satisfy our physical desires, his point there for his mouth. Uh, his appetite is never satisfied. And so he's he's using that as an illustration. If you only work to survive, you're never satisfied. If you if you work, if you just work with no thought about why you're working, no consideration of the eternal significance of what we do, something we've talked about a lot, probably what Solomon talks about throughout the book, you're never satisfied. So do you follow what he's saying? In other words, if you just work to eat, every day you eat your meals and that morning you get, you get ready to go to work the next morning, you got to work to eat. And all you're doing is just to eat. You follow me? He says that, that cannot be the only purpose for why we survive. The only purpose for living is just to get enough to eat. There's got to be more to life than just that. And so he goes on then in verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Let's stop there for a moment. Who do you think he's referred, referring to when he says not able to dispute with one stronger than he? Whom do you think he's talking about there? God. Yeah, right. So it's, it's kind of like... Um, the, the statement, it's, it's hard for us sometimes, the statement, whatever has come to be has already been named and is not known, and is, it is known what man is. Again, referring to the sovereignty and providence of God. Whatever, whatever has come to be has already been named. God has already sovereignly determined and decided what is to be. And how can you dispute the results of what he has chosen to be. You're going to argue with him. Are you familiar with the book of Job? Because if you know, at the end of the book of Job, Job argues with God. He disputes with God. And God sits Job down and says, okay, Job, you, you want to tell me how to run the universe? Where were you when I created? He just lists off, God lists a whole bunch of things. It's that same sentiment that Solomon is trying to communicate here. So before we get into the next verse, 
what should our response be then? If what has come, God's sovereignty is all extensive, all comprehensive, it involves everything. And if it's silly for us to dispute with one stronger than us, then what should be our response? Excuse me, Jim. I need the chapter and verse. I'm kind of mixed up this morning. Chap- I'm in chapter 6, verse 10. Thank you. Are you with me, Woody? Okay. Yes. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, which is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We walk by faith, not by sight. However, have you ever disputed with God? Never. Joe's lying, and he's sitting right next to me. Now, I mean, I'm trying to be a little, it's a little humorous, a little facetious, but the, the, the answer to that is, I'm sure, for everyone here in this room, as well as those, those of you that are online, we do dispute with God. We do question sometimes, and we ask that very important question that we often ask, why? Why is this happening? Why and whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And I, I've talked about this before, I know many times. You read the Psalms, you see in the Psalms a lot of examples of the psalmist contending with God, disputing with God, asking God, even railing against God. But he always comes back to the simple proposition where else could I go? Where else can I find comfort and meaning and purpose? Because If I rely just on my own resources, that never works very well. So in a sense, that's what Solomon, he's kind of reaching this conclusion again, which he does this over and over again. I cannot explain what's happening. I'm frustrated by not being able to explain, but I fall back. You know better than what I do. And therefore, it's that response of confident trust and confident dependence on God. And so he says... In verse 11, as he continues now, this disputing, talking to, and challenging God, the more words, the more vanity. What advantage, what is the advantage to man? I mean, the more we talk, the more we dispute, and remember, vanity kind of means empty, purposeless, meaningless. We're not getting anywhere. The more words we say, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, while he passes like a shadow. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, those, those last, that last verse contains a series of rhetorical questions. Who knows what is good for man while he lives? For who can tell what will happen to him after he dies under the sun? What's the answer to both those questions? Okay, obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. What's the answer to those two questions? The only answer is who? God. God's the only one who knows that. And so it's, it's he, and he, he does this as a kind of a literary device. He leaves us hanging. And that's it. Now he moves on to something else. But that's often the effect of a rhetorical question. You ask a rhetorical question where the answer is so obvious. You don't answer it, just go on to the next topic. We sometimes do that in writing. We sometimes do that in speaking. I sometimes do that when I'm preaching. The answer is so clear, I'll raise the rhetorical question, and I'll move to the next point. Because you know the answer. And so that's what Solomon, I can't figure everything out. 
And I have the choice to dispute with God, but the more words I use, the more empty that is. So whom do I trust? Whom do I put my confidence in? Because, and this is the essence of faith, God is the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He knows the beginning from the end. Therefore, if that's true, and it is, I will trust him. And so that's where Solomon ends, and I'm sorry I didn't finish that last week, but that's where Solomon ends with his discussion about why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I working so hard just to feed myself? If that's the case, I'm never satisfied. There's more to it than that, and that's what concludes this little discussion. All right? Yeah. Well, it, it, it makes you wonder how atheists or agnostics find this sense of purpose. <laughs> I just was going to open with I, I, the Solomon, even the programming for the movie theaters where we had the Saturday morning series, always like game. Hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting the order reversed here. But, but the more important question is, is how, and is that why it is so, why the Great Commission is so important? Because there, in Christian apologetics, there is, I can't remember who it was, it was John Lennox or one of his colleagues, that asserted that, that um, I think it's Richard Dawkins, I'm not sure, the points Richard Dawkins makes are valid if it's true that there's no God. Yeah. In other words, his reasoning is actually circular. He starts out from the premise there's no God, and then he illustrates how that's how things work. But he he didn't really address the question of proving there's no God. Yeah. Well. <laughs> He's an interesting man. His, he's talking about Richard Dawkins, who's one of the more famous atheists living today. And I, I think he really, he mocks those who believe in God and believes that's enough. Now I'm going to show you why it's, why we can live without the idea of a God. And then he constructs all these, these different things. Very famous, very articulate, uh, actually probably quite brilliant. But uh, I think the the, the fundamental problem for the atheist, and, and, and that's what Solomon keeps bringing up, the fundamental problem for the atheist or the person who, who consciously lives without God is at some point in your life, you're going to start asking the question, why am I doing all this? What, why am I living the way I'm living? Um, why am I, you know, you're a wealthy man, you have lots of real estate or you have lots of investments. Why am I doing all and at what point do I say I've had enough? Now what am I going to do? I mean, they're the kind of questions that if people are intellectually honest, at some point they're going to ask themselves those questions. And Dawkins just ignores a lot of that, to be honest with you. He tries to show why the ethical behavior is still possible without a God, why moral behavior is possible without a God. But ultimately, he doesn't really get to that key question about life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think... I may be wrong because I really never met him. I've only heard him lecture. I've read some of his stuff. When Richard Dawkins is getting near the end of the life, 
If he's intellectually honest at some point, he's going to ask himself that question. And then he asks a question, okay, when I die, is that it? There is nothing beyond the physical world. So, but that, that ultimately, they're the signs of things that Solomon keeps bringing up. And that's why I love this book. Let's move to chapter seven, which I thought I was starting, but now I didn't. So now I am going to start. But uh, chapter seven, the first 14 verses, Solomon deals with the issues, some things he's dealt with before. But here, a life that's characterized by adversity and a life that is characterized by prosperity, or a life which is more typical, where I have moments of great prosperity and I have moments of great adversity. Now, adversity can be sickness, it can be a tragic accident, it can be tragic economic issues, it can be tragic political issues of war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever adversity is, Solomon's asking this question. Is God only the author, remember, in terms of his sovereignty and his providence? Is God only the author of the good things in life? Or is God also providentially involved in the adverse things of life? Notice I did not say cause. That's a, that's an, a, a little important theological nuance that I'll address in just a little bit. Or, another way of maybe putting it somewhat humorously, or do adverse things that happen to catch God off on his blind side? I, I didn't know that was going to happen. Jim, if I didn't know what was going to happen to you, I'd have prevented it from happening. Do we really want to say that about God? Is that the kind of God I serve? Things slip up on his blind side? He misses them? We don't want to say that, do we? So we come up with language which I think is part of our struggle when we find like, people talking about God who's infinite. God permits certain things. God has the power and authority to stop something adverse happening to us, but he chooses not to do it. Why does he choose not to do it? This is what Solomon is beginning to explore. And so he begins with, by this argument, his discussion with verse 1, by a little proverb. And it's an interesting proverb to begin a discussion of adversity and prosperity. A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death than the day of birth. Okay. What does he mean by a good name is better than precious ointment? For you and me, precious ointment, you think, oh, that's cosmetic stuff. That's for my wife or that's my daughter. That's not me. No, but this is this is this, the ointment that was a part of in the ancient world because it was usually such an arid climate. You did put moisture stuff on your skin. That was just something you did. It was very precious, very expensive, particularly for those who are wealthy. So he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. What does he mean by good name? Your your reputation. Your reputation, personal integrity. A person that's trustworthy. Your reputation is better than precious ointment. Something that's very expensive. Then a day of death, better than a day of birth. <clears throat> what does he mean by that? <clears throat> well, the day of birth, you're just beginning life and you have no idea what's ahead. 
because he says, and this is what he's going to be talking about, you're going to experience a lot of adversity as well as a lot of prosperity. Your life's going to be like this. And the day of death is better because the day of death, it's over. My struggle in life is over. And if you believe in eternity, and if you believe in a God whom you love and have a relationship by faith, then in that sense, the day of death is better than the day of birth. In that sense. And so he's he's laying out in terms of little proverbs, things that cause us to think about facing the adversities of life. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sadness to face, the heart is being led. Now, let's talk for just a minute. Solomon is beginning, he has not talked about this up to the point in this point in the book. He's talking about the brevity of life. From God's perspective, which is eternal, he has no limits in terms of time, he's beyond time. You and I are framed by time. And the brevity of life is a reality. In Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalm that's written by, by Moses, the only one Moses, the only psalm Moses wrote, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days. So what is what is Moses saying by that? It's the same thing Solomon's saying. Life is short. Make sure every day counts. And because life is short, life is going to be filled with lots of adversity as well as lots of prosperity. I just like this. This is our life. So what he's saying in these verse 2 and into verse 3, now listen very carefully how I'm going to put this. Because life is short and you want every day to have count to count as, as meaningful, purposeful days, reflection, thinking, and reflecting on the brevity of life and how I want to use my life is better than levity and mirth. It's, it's, it's better than, than feasting and, and just living it up, if I can put it that way. That's what he's saying. Life is short. Life is going to be filled with adversity as well as prosperity. And every day counts. Every day is important. How are you going to approach every day? That's what he's saying. It's better to go to the house of mourning. In the house of mourning, just think about this. I, I know some of you have lost loved ones in the last year or so, so I'm, 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 I'm hoping that this will make sense to you and it's not going to hurt you. But if you go to someone that you really care and really love and you're grieving, you're reflecting. You're thinking about that life. You're thinking about that person who was so important to you. And that's what he's talking about. It's better to go to the house of mourning. What does he mean? Because there you will reflect. You'll think about life. You'll think about how short life is. You'll think about how important every day you had with that person was. That's what he's talking about. Do you understand? When he says it's better to have a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Because the house of feasting, all you're thinking about is, and that's not that that's wrong, but all you're thinking about is the good food, the fun of having, the clapping, and all that happy stuff. This is right. But you're not reflecting on the brevity of life. It's not that that's wrong. But because life is short, 
and every day matters. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us, Lord, to count our days. No more days. Make sure every day counts for you. Psalm is saying, I'm just encouraging to think about the brevity of life and how you should live. Now, I'm the oldest person around here. And I look back on my life, and the Lord has been very good to me. But I'll tell you, I look back on my life, and I wish I'd relived a lot of days in my life. And all Solomon is saying, this is what he's saying, by using proverbs, by using little figurative phrases, we have to think about them. It matters how you live your life. Reflect on that. In context, that life is short. Think about that. Reflect on that. So he can say in verse 3, or verse 4, excuse me, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. And again, remember, in context of the shortness and brevity of life, because the wise, the wise person is a person who reflects on the brevity of life and how I'm going to live each day of my life. Whereas the fool, it just has the vantage point, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I die. So you've lived your life by eating, drinking, and being married. And that was life. You follow it? You see what he's saying? Okay, four of you got it. Therefore, verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of the fool. It's a major theme in the wisdom literature of the Bible. Wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, some of the Psalms, etc. Job. Listen to wise reflections about life. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And that, that doesn't mean a lot, but often what they would do as a way to get a fire started is they would use the dried out thorns. And you start to quickly get a fire started, but they would be like sparks and just going out, they're gone, they're gone. That's what he's saying. The counsel of a fool is like the crackling thorns that start a fire. They they boom, 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 they're gone. That's what the that's what the fools do. They're worthless. Don't listen. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. The patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. When he says, I, I'm reading for the ESV. Verse 7, surely oppression. You could translate that extortion. You could translate that blackmail. Drives the wise to madness. A bribe corrupts his heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient spirit better than the proud spirit. So he's talking again. His point here is how you're going to live your life, how you're going to reflect on your life, how you're going to, you're going to think about the shortness and brevity of life. Extortion, bribery, that motivates you? Is that what motivates the wise person? No, shouldn't, because the end is better than the beginning. Patience is better than pride. Let's put this, let's put this again in the language of verse 1, the first part of verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. A good reputation. If the end is better than the beginning, 
What's the wise counsel there for you and me? Finish well with your life. The end is better than the beginning. I've thought about this a lot because I am getting older. And there are two verses that have really been meaningful to me these last several years. One is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul says, I put all of the things of my past behind me. I press on to the high calling of the prize in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? I have a lot of things in my past that I regret, and I'm not looking backward, I'm looking forward. My eyes, this is a way to paraphrase what he's saying, my eyes are on the prize. The end is better than the beginning. The second verse is what Jesus says. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I remember my mother before she died, um, uh, the last uh, or maybe two or three years of her life, she would say to me, Jim, I just want to finish well. I maybe have said that before in the class, but that was something my mom I mean, said a lot of things to me in my life. But over over those last two or three years or so of her life, that really stuck with me because I thought, here's my mom. She she was ninety, almost ninety three when she passed away. But um, I, I just remember she near the end of her life. She had you know had four children. She had a very active life and so on. And all that was driving her in terms of how to I just want to finish well. I don't want to do anything, say anything that I will have regrets about. I just want to finish well. And then she would say, I just want to hear Jesus look me in the eye and say, well done. Her name was Ruth. Well done, Ruth. And I thought about that a lot. That's what Solomon is saying here. The end is better than the beginning. What's the end for you? What, what's your goal? What's your, and it's this whole purpose, purposeful direction of why we're doing what we're doing. And Solomon begins this little discourse, a good name is better than anything else. But a good name, a reputation, is something you earn by how you live. Reputation isn't gained in a vacuum. It's how you live your life. And so Solomon is just with these short, pithy zingers that he lays on us. He's giving this counsel. Think about every day, because life is short. Don't waste days. Don't take the counsel for the house of mourning. That's a place of reflection. Not the place of mirth, the place where the fool is. The fool is just living for the moment. The wise isn't. The wise person isn't living for the moment. The The wise person is living for the end. And if we believe in eternity, we believe in a God, and we believe it matters how we walk with him, the words of Jesus are a pretty good goal. I want to hear Jesus say, well done. And that's what Solomon is, if I can put it in New Testament words, that's what Solomon is really encouraging us to think about. All right, are you with me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Everybody online okay? We're doing yes. good.
Yeah. Okay. I'm going to get to talk to you guys. Let's continue in verse 9 now. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. That's a good little piece of advice about the emotional dimension of our life. And then I love verse 10. One of my favorite verses in, in Ecclesiastes. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Don't tell me you've never said that. My, my dad used to say that all the time. Oh, when, when I was growing up, it was so much better than it is today. My dad was born in 1924. My dad lived through the Depression. My dad went, he served in the Navy in World War II. And I would say, Dad, those days were not better than this. He said, well, things were such, so much simpler back then. I said, Dad, you and Grandpa hardly had enough to eat. Grandma and the family. Dad ran, my grandpa ran for a while, ran a chicken farm during the Depression and stuff like that. And he said, well, it was just simpler. I thought, Dad, I always thought about that. And so many people, went, and it seems that for all of us, we look back and say, you know, things were much better back then. Remember, I was talking to a, a guy who, uh, he was an older gentleman, but he said, boy, the 1950s was such a good decade. And that's when I was just starting school. I was born in 1947. I was just starting school and saying, boy, I don't have a lot of good memories of some of the things in the 50s. And then as we entered the 60s, we were going into air raid shelters and we were doing exercises under our desk because there was going to be an atom bomb. And I remember living, then I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and I mean, all those kinds of things. I think, oh, and then I remember what happened in the 60s as the campuses exploded in the Vietnam War and all. I don't remember those as really good decades because that's when I was going to school and in education doing my college work. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So many believers go into the future with their eye in the rearview mirror and their foot on the brake instead of eye straight ahead. I love what I said it earlier. I love what Paul says in Philippians 3.14. My eyes on the prize. The best day of your life, I think this is actually a song, but the best day of your life is today. That's what scripture is saying to us. Live for the future. Your eyes on the prize. And every day counts in terms of God's perspective on things. Wisdom is good with an inherent and an advantage to those who see the sun. These are like proverbial statements. Wisdom is good with an inherent. What is inherent? That's future. You're thinking about the future. An advantage to those who see the sun. That's forward looking. See the sun. That's all he's saying with these proverbs. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. An advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We are not sovereign. We are not. Our providence is meaningless. God is the one in whom we trust. And so when he says, uh, what wisdom is given inheritance and advance to those who see the sun, and then he brings in God, God's the one that you're focusing on. 
And that is, that is uh, consequential to everything that he's arguing in this book of Ecclesiastes. In the day, therefore, this is how you live your life. Verse 14, this is the conclusion. This is how you live your life. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything after, that will be after him. Only God knows the future. So whether it's adversity or prosperity, God's involved in both. Live with that perspective. Prosperity, be joyful. Adversity, consider. God's still with me. And the Bible has much to say about adversity and, and how God uses that in our lives and, and, and so on. So I don't think we need to necessarily talk about that. Okay, yes. Questions or comments here on what Solomon has been talking about? Yeah, please. My parents always taught me, I've embraced it when, as I should have, but they taught me that, that it is, it's your life's trials that help you grow. You don't grow in times of prosperity, you're relaxing. Um, one of my favorite movies, I don't like very many movies that were made after 1960. <laughs> okay. One of them does qualify as charity. Uh, it's a great movie. I, I love it. TCM just put it on their website. For those of you that have Cox, you can access this free. They're all free movies you can watch. But it occurred to me that that movie was about two Olympic champion runners from Great Britain. But the movie didn't focus on their success. The movie focused on their adversity and how they dealt with it. Harold Abrahams getting on the train to go to Keys, where he went to school. <laughs> he met this other runner and they, they started talking. He says, you know, I, one guy says, I, 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 you know, the other thing I don't like about running is losing. Harold says, I don't know, I've never lost. One of the great scenes in that movie is when he loses to Gary Little. Mm-hmm. And how he deals with that, how his girlfriend, his fiance helps him deal with that. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things that's not obvious in the movie, but it's there, it opens and closes with a funeral service, is for Harold. And, and, and his, his big deal was dealing with his, his Jewishness and anti-Semitism. I, I, I call it prejudice because I didn't really see a lot of anti-Semitism portrayed in the movie. But you realize that that funeral service for this troubled Jew was a Christian service. Harold, before he passed away, converted to Christianity. Uh, it, it really fits with that story. Fits with what these verses are telling us. Well, that's there are so many things in that movie that are, are valuable. And of course, the hero of Eric Liddell and who he is and what he did with his life and how he organized the priorities of his life, even because of how he looked at Sunday, he would not run on Sunday and all those things. But yet, still, God honored that. And I love the statement that he makes, and it's in the biography of him too. I run to bring glory to God. 
he was a missionary. He would die in China. But, but when he's explaining to his sister yeah, why yeah, he does yeah. what he's why, why? I, I'm, I'm You're ignoring your purpose here. No, no, no. I run. When I run, I feel his pleasure. And that he reflects what Solomon is talking about. Everything Eric Liddell did, did was for the glory of God. He saw God in everything he did. So he works hard. He trains hard to be in the Olympics, but it's for the glory of God. That's a great movie. That just yeah, that's well. Rare, rarely do I talk about movies, but that that is I agree with that. All right, we have about fifteen. Uh, well, it's eighteen minutes maybe. We're going to continue because in verse fifteen, Solomon shifts a little bit. Continuing with the idea of God's providence, remember what that means, but also human character, the character of humanity in light of God's providence. And he's asking, in effect, he's asking a couple of questions in this section. Is prosperity material blessing? an indicator of God's good pleasure. Is it always an indicator of God's good pleasure? And if you, depending on how you answer that question, then this question becomes equally important. Is adversity always an indicator of God's anger? Well, that's, well, I mean, see, but that's, that's an important question. There are some people, that frames their theology. If you study the book of Job, his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all are saying to him, you're suffering in the garbage dump of us because God's angry with you. You did something wrong. Own up, Job. Confess it, and everything will be fine. And Job's defense is, no, that is not right. I do not have anything that I've done that is an affront to God. Well, anyway, it's, it's, this is what Solomon is probing here. He talked a little bit about adversity and prosperity in the first 14 verses. Now he applies it to the development of human character. If someone is very prosperous, the material blessing in their life, does that mean, does that mean God has looked with favor upon them? That's an indication of God's good pleasure. And the person who is poor, uh, sick, is in tremendous adversity. God's angry with that person. That's why that person. It's the same thing the disciples. When they enter the Bethsaida, Bethsaida, there's a blind man, and they say, Jesus, who sinned, that man or his parents? What are they asking Jesus? He's blind because he sinned, or he's blind because his parents sinned. And Jesus just puts that head on. Don't look at things in life that way. So I'm really starting to yell here. Don't look at things like life that way. Don't frame those questions so simply. Things are much more complicated than that. Because God will use adversity to mature and grow human character, just as he will use prosperity. You can never assume what God is doing just by looking at the presence or absence of material blessing. And I'm giving you, I'm shooting it all at you right up front. Now look at how he develops this. 
Are you with me on understanding the introduction to this? And he has a he has a series of points he wants to make here. And so I've divided this, and I think it's that way in, in your notes as well. But he, he's now going to launch into an investigation about this. And so the very first point is verses 15 through 18. This is point one of his investigation. In my vain life, I have seen everything, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting introduction. I'm now going to share with you, this is Solomon talking, I'm going to share with you a bunch of observations I've made. This is what I've seen. First, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Wow, that is a great observation about life. Did you ever make that observation? I have a, there's a guy in my church. Uh, I've mentioned him before, but he, he's married. He has two beautiful children. Uh, he has a, he's a really a very good at his work. He's the vice president of a company here in town. There's cancer all over his body. They've now found lesions in his brain. He's a devout believer. He works with my son-in-law. Devout believer. He's going to, he's not going to survive in 2023. That's what Solomon said. I have observed a righteous man who perishes in righteousness. Luke is going to die in 2023 unless God directly intervenes and performs some kind of a miracle. Does that make sense to you? Solomon's saying, I've observed that. And then I observe wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And I, I said this to Peggy last week. I said, honey, you know, if I were God and I look at Luke, I wouldn't take Luke. I go down to Skid Row and take two guys down there. Isn't that a horrible thing to say? But you understand what I mean? Because that's how we look at life when we say that. That doesn't make sense. Solomon has said, in main life, I've seen everything. This is one of the things I've seen. So often, righteous people die young, and unrighteous people live long lives. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Okay. Be not overly righteous. What does he mean by that? If you are depending on your righteousness to guarantee God's blessing, you have the wrong perspective. Yes. It comes back to you can't earn your way to heaven. And I know this is something I struggle with. You can't earn your way to heaven. And yet your behavior turns. It's, uh, you know, it's one of life's conundrums in my mind. Well, it, it's kind of a cart before the horse question. You cannot earn or merit your way to heaven. That, you know, the scriptures talk about righteousness being like filthy rags and so on. 
It's by faith. That is, no one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says in John chapter 14. Okay, you come to that position of faith, and what's, what now motivates you in the rest of your life? This is the theme of Scripture. I do good to please God, not to earn his favor. That's your motivation. And that's all that, so Solomon, it's, it's, it, you, have to, you, have to, you have to be very careful how you understand what he's saying. Be not overly righteous and make yourself too wise. If you are depending on your righteousness to earn the favor of God, to, to get his material blessing, you got the wrong perspective. It's the same thing with the person who is wicked. So it's better, it's better to seek balance. Don't, don't seek to do righteous things to get God's blessing or seek to do stupid things to get. No, the balance of life is it's good for you to take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out from both of them. That, that is a little, a little odd of a translation, but the key is this. Your perspective on life is to fear God. Remember, fear is a worship word. We've talked about that before. But to fear God. So the, 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 worshipful, the worshipful response to life is, Lord, there's an awful lot of things I don't understand in my life, but I know one thing. My faith and trust in you is the most important thing in my life. And because of my faith and trust in you, I will then serve you. I will then live for you. So that my worship is the most important thing. My focus is on you, and I will trust you whether I have adversity or whether I have prosperity. Because I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I don't know what's happening going to happen to me next week. But I do know someone who does know. So the, the first test of Solomon's investigation is, well, I've observed that righteous people often die young. And unrighteous people live forever. I don't understand that. Solomon steps back and says, well, the one thing I do know, if I try to believe that my righteousness is going to earn God's blessing, I've got the wrong perspective. Same way, to live a life that's foolish and just to, to live for the moment, that too is foolish. So the fear of God is the key of the investigation. Second, verse 19 through 24 is point number two. Righteous, righteousness does not guarantee protection from harm. Wisdom, I'm in verse 19 now, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it's not far from me. That which is far off in the very, very deep, what I can find out. All right, in your notes, I've talked about this, and I'm going to refer to those. Righteousness does not guarantee God's material blessing or his protection. 
but wisdom does. Living a wise life. So the first thing he says in verse, uh, verse 19 is wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers from a city. Now that's exaggeration. That's the language of exaggeration. But what does he mean? Wisdom gives more protection than 10 military rulers guarding the city. What does he mean by that? Wise action is better than taking physical action. Okay. Uh, wise responses, using your brain rather than your mind, that's not it. No, that, not it. Isn't wisdom the practical application of knowledge? Okay. So the practical application of knowledge, which enables you to live, is better than brute strength. The ten rulers who are in a city, that, that's the brute military strength. It's better the practical application, not how I live my life. Okay, now let's, let's make sure we're not missing what he's, he's counseling here. What is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Remember, that's something you see that in Proverbs, you see it in Ecclesiastes, you see it in, Psalm, in the Psalms. Beginning of wisdom is fear. That's the beginning point. Okay, so wisdom, I mean, let's really unpack this. Wisdom means I begin my thinking, I begin my actions, I begin my motivation. And everything about me with the proposition, there is a God, a God who exists and cares about me, who created me, a God who has saved me by his grace. So wisdom is I begin everything I do with my focus on God. That's better than brute strength. How wisdom about, is... How about I want to please God. I want to please God. That's that that is that's absolutely wisdom. that's absolutely right. That's part of that. Earn, it won't earn me anything. That's right. I mean, it's it's part of wisdom is keeping God in the focus of everything you do, and that desire, that motivation to please God. That is a wise way to live your life. A wise way to approach everything about your life. Is that what you're saying, Woody? Yes. That's yeah. I mean, that's absolutely that right. Should, that should be our goal. Yeah. That, that's right. That, that's right. So he goes on. Surely, verse twenty. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sin. What is Romans? 323 say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is that true? There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's true, isn't it? So, so no one on earth, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And is that not why? Earning your way to heaven is futile. Yeah. 
Because if you believe that keeping God's moral law will earn you interest in heaven, then you cannot make one mistake. You cannot violate one of the commands. Not one. Well, I kept 99.9%, but you didn't keep them all. Because for, for perfection is the, is the insistence of God. What all Solomon is saying, it, it's very simple. It, it's stated in a pro, proverb of verse 20. No righteous man is righteous 100% of the time. How does that fit into his over-argument? This righteousness is... is, is is the prosperity and material blessings of God an indicator of my righteousness 100% of the time? No, because no one is righteous. Number three, uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to soon bring this to conclusion. Verse th- the, the, the third point in verse 21 and 22, he uses an illustration. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So you put listening devices in all of your rooms of your servants, and in those listening devices, you hear them cursing you, and you engage in rage, and then you remember there were times where you cursed others. There's no one who is righteous 100% of the time. And you sit in, you know, here you're the ruler, and you sit in your high chair looking down. My servants cursed me, and you get ready. And then you remember, you cursed others too. No one is righteous 100% of the time. But then he says, and I will conclude with this, but wisdom has its limits. Verse 23 and 24. All of this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. I determined to be wise, but but to be wise 100% of the time is far from me. Why? Because that which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What is this point? (laughs) You know, true, eternally significant depths of wisdom. Few find that. Because we're talking about the wisdom of God. I believe, now this is my, this isn't Solomon, this is my speaking. I believe that wisdom is something that we gain, but never completely achieve. 100%. I think wisdom is what we are progressively learning. We're learning to be wise. But we never attain it 100% of the time. Because we're not God. Sin affects our minds, our emotions, it affects our will, it affects everything about us. And until we get our glorified, resurrected bodies... We're never going to be able to completely attain with 100% all of the wisdom that God has for us. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we immerse our hearts and our souls and our minds in his word, the wiser we become. 
We see that even with Solomon. He was supposed to be the wisest man who ever lived. Did he live wisely every single day of his life? No, of course he didn't. All right. Um, are you with me here in what we're doing? Or I should say what Solomon's doing. He has two of his tests down. He has three more he wants to do. We'll pick up with verse 25 next week, which is the third test. Because remember, he's asking these questions. Is prosperity always an indicator of God's good pleasure? Is adversity always an indicator of God's anger? He's already made two major tests. He has three more he wants to, to perform. All right? All right, nobody knows where Fred's God is, so maybe I'll pray for him. He's maybe in some very destitute situation because he never tells us. He never shares anything with us. There's always a mystery about Fred. So I'm a little concerned about him. I hope he's okay. Father, we thank you for these words from Solomon. He challenges us. At least he does me. He challenges me to think about things that I don't always think about. And it's certainly true that as he distills all this down, the fundamental bedrock of our life and walk with you is to fear you, is to worship you, is to be devoted to you. We do not know the future. And it is an absolute axiom of Scripture that what we do and even the prosperity and material blessing is not always an indicator of your favor, nor is adversity an indication of your anger. It's not that simple. Lord, help us to be men who trust you because that's ultimate, like we read at the end of, of verses 1 through 14. It's ultimately to trust you and to depend on you and not necessarily to have everything figured out. We are finite. We're temporal people. We're dealing with a God who's infinite, who's eternal, and who loves us. Lord, help us to seek to live our lives in a way that bring glory to you, that bring pleasure to you, that we want to serve you, we want to please you, we want to do that which honors you. And as Solomon told us earlier, the end is more important than the beginning. What is the focal point? Like a laser beam, we're focused on the future. Like a laser beam, we're, we're motivated by what my mom used to say, I want to finish well. I want to hear you say, well done. Lord, that is what Solomon's talking about. The end is better than the beginning. To keep our focus on what, why really are we doing what we're doing, living the way we live? What excites us? What gets us up every day to begin our day? The answer, simply put, is you. Our relationship with you is the vital center of everything we do. May we pulsate with the desire to please you. May we seek to to hear you say to us, well done. Help us to finish our lives well in a way that pleases and honors you. We bring glory to you in everything we do. We trust you with that. Be with these men. May we, may we represent you well in this world. We trust each one to you in your name. Amen.